You are listening to Living for the Cinema with Jeff Gershon. I am a cinema enthusiast of all genres, here to discuss with you one film every episode. The good, the bad, and the ugly of what makes each film unique. Spoiler alert. No matter when this film was released, there's a good possibility I will be revealing spoilers about the plot or even possibly the ending. So just be warned. 28 Days Later, which came out in 2003. It was directed by Danny Boyle. It stars Cillian Murphy, Naomi Harris, Brendan Gleeson, Megan Burns, and Christopher Eccleston. The genre would be post-apocalyptic thriller. In the blink of an eye. The chimps are infected. A deadly virus spread. And the world he knew was gone. No! It's the blood. Something in the blood. From director Danny Boyle. He's infected! Killian no! Murphy, Naomi Harris. <laughs> the fan favorite, 28 Days Later. Despite having several genuinely scary sequences and what could be among the most terrifying versions of zombies ever put to screen, this might be the most life-affirming zombie thriller ever. And that is likely all due to Danny Boyle. I mean, if you had asked me 10 years ago, I would have attributed this also to screenwriter Alex Garland. But now having seen every film that he has directed since then, including Annihilation and Ex Machina. One day the AIs are going to look back on us the same way we look at fossil skeletons in the plains of Africa. Well, it's 100% Boyle. Yeah, for one of our most emphatically British filmmakers who has made his mark over the past 30 years delving into no shortage of hard R-rated content while also avoiding franchises, I have found that most of Danny's films end up presenting audiences with a surprisingly hopeful slash can-do, dare I say, American point of view. No, that's not implying that it's better, of course, nor is it even saying that putting out darker, more nihilistic content can't be the purview of American directors. I mean, David Fincher, anyone? <laughs> it's just that considering that Boyle has directed films like this one, which often go to very grimy and grim places, which would make even the likes of grim Brits, that's a phrase that's entirely made up by me, by the way, British directors who do grim films, like Ken Loach or Mike Lee take notice, Danny Boyle has proven to have a knack for adeptly concluding these films on surprisingly optimistic notes. I mean, think of the ending of Trainspotting. Whether that's a genuinely happy ending on paper is up for discussion. But I remember first walking out of that movie at the very end, feeling jazzed and with a smile on my face. Despite having just finished a film featuring a major character dying of AIDS and a floating dead baby on the ceiling in one scene. I don't know, maybe it was just hearing that rousing Underworld song at the end as Renton walks towards the camera. I'm cleaning up and I'm moving on, going straight and choosing life. I'm looking forward to it already. I mean, yeah, think of other films that Danny Boyle's directed. Sunshine, 127 Hours, Slumdog Millionaire. Hell, why was I so touched watching Steve Jobs, of all people, just barely acting semi-human towards his daughter at the end of that movie? I mean, I'm not even an Apple person. Well, speaking of train spotting and Underworld, it's Danny Boyle's usage of music, which certainly plays a part, which is certainly the case here with both the now iconic John Murphy score and a strong curation of needle drops. Danny Boyle is just one of the best when it comes to utilizing just the right song to augment a scene, and we'll get to some of those shortly. So yes, music is essential to film, as is a tight script, along with a strong cast. This movie also has those in spades, as the screenwriter Garland helps give this a clean three-act structure, while still delivering a few surprises along the way. This is Mr. Bridges. Where you been? This is daughter. I live four doors now. Were you bitten? No. 
Did any of the blood get in your mouth? Mark? And you could just feel his clever nihilism sprinkled throughout, including that one display of white graffiti in a church early on proclaiming, the end is extremely fucking nigh. Yeah, okay, it reads better than it sounds. <laughs> and about that cast, Oscar nominee Brendan Gleeson very much provides the film's genuine heart, at least during the midsection, as an endearing protecting father with his daughter holed up in a high rise in the middle of London. And the story still very much hinges on the strength of two adeptly natural performances from the two main leads. Jim, played by Cillian Murphy, who the movie starts with, and Naomi Harris playing Selena. It started as writing, and right from the beginning you knew this was different. Because it was happening in small villages, market towns. And then it wasn't on the TV anymore. It was in the street outside, it was coming through your windows. It was a virus. Infection. You didn't need a doctor to tell you that. It was the blood. Or something in the blood. By the time they tried to evacuate the cities, it was already too late. I remember this being my introduction to both of these actors 20 years ago, and it has been gratifying to witness the nicely varied careers that they have each had since then, in movies big and small. From Dunkirk to Moonlight to Skyfall to Anthropoid. Yeah, that last one's actually a World War II drama about the Battle of Stalingrad starring Cillian Murphy. Really good, check it out. And first watching them in this film, neither of them really felt like actors here at first. They just feel very authentic, especially Murphy in one key sequence, which I will get to a bit later. And of course, that leads to the actual zombies themselves. They're carriers of the man-made rage virus and are only referred to in the movie as, quote, infected. And if you're an aficionado of the undead, you can certainly debate their actual merits to qualify as zombies. But from my standpoint, they qualify for meeting the one main criteria. They are mindless creatures with zero humanity who inhabit human bodies, plain and simple. The creature effects and the makeup are spare yet effective. Extremely bloodshot eyes seem to be the most obvious physical trait of the infected. And the overall grainy look of the film stock certainly helps as well. But what really helps sell these menacing figures as much as anything is the sound design. They are fast, feral, and loud. The frightening soundscape of this movie kicks off with the terrifying shudder of those rage-infected gorillas bashing on their cages in the opening scene. And it never really lets up from there. And whether you consider them zombies or not, you just cannot overstate the cultural impact of this movie and how it helped revitalize the zombie subgenre. At the time 28 Days Later was released in the UK in 2002, the zombie genre was pretty much quiet, outside of the Resident Evil video game. But the surprise breakout success of this movie, including the introduction of fast zombies, kind of changed all that. We would then see the release of Zack Snyder's Dawn of the Dead, his remake, and Shaun of the Dead within the next couple of years as well, as well as the beginning of Robert Kirkman's The Walking Dead comic book series, yeah, the original comic book series that started in 03, Max Brooks' hugely popular World War Z novel published in 2006, and we were off to the races. 
And now here in 2023, we are saturated with zombie content. And zombies have become so mainstream that their fictional existence is now often incorporated into grade school curriculum to help teach kids geography. Yeah, imagine me shocked to learn that at a parent-teacher night for one of my daughters several years ago. Wow. It's kind of crazy in retrospect, but you can now look back at so many cultural touch points since this film's release. Whether it be The Walking Dead TV series, or The Last of Us, or Zombieland, or Train to Busan, and you'll find some DNA for those properties within this very movie. And why is this film so resonant 20 years later? Because despite the post-apocalyptic setting and the frightening emergence of fast-running zombies, there is still a humanity at its core. See, see, this is a really shit idea. You know why? Because it's really obviously a shit idea. So, I'm just gonna drive into it. Fucking smash cars and broken glasses. It's really fucking obviously a shit idea. Hold on! Which brings us to the categories. The first category would be the best needle drop. This is the best song cue or piece of score used throughout the runtime of the film. My personal favorites from really an amazing soundtrack include the fun grocery store montage cut to AM 180. That's the song from Granddaddy. Just such a fun, rewarding sequence watching our four main leads, at least at this point in the movie, kicking back on a spree of their favorite unperishable food items to the dulcet tones of analog recorders bleep blooping especially watching Brendan Gleeson's Teddy Bear Frank comparison shopping various scotches. Let's shop. course there's the extended climax at the military mansion which generally works from a narrative standpoint though it does have its share of moments stretching credulity when it comes to just how unstoppable Cillian Murphy's Jim suddenly becomes now from a visual standpoint it's obvious what Boyle's going for Jim himself now starts to resemble a relentless infected killing machine even though he was not actually infected and suddenly the actual infected in the scene the zombies they've become super adept at reaching through windows to grab the bad guys yeah, it starts to feel a bit too convenient at points, but what helps it truly work, besides the visuals, it's the gradually building guitar and percussion of John Murphy's track In the House in the Heartbeat, which is truly an all-timer of a song.
The next category would be Wasted Talent. This is the most underutilized talent involved with the film. Now, all around, this cast is pretty strong. And that even includes Chris Eccleston as Major Henry West, who we don't meet until the third act. Even though the screenplay clearly paints him in broad strokes as a villain from the get-go, the actor actually does a nice job of underplaying this quiet monster. Mela? Jim. Jim. Mela. Got infected two days ago. Mitchell managed to knock him out cold and we got a chain round his neck. Keeping him alive. The idea was to learn something about infection. Have him teach me. And has he? In a way. He's telling me he'll never bake bread. Plant crops. Raise livestock. He's telling me he's futureless. And eventually, he'll tell me how long the infected take to starve to death. Now, we don't agree with what he's trying to do, but at the very least, he chillingly helps us understand why. Now, I've heard and read criticisms of this character as too on the nose or too shoehorned into the story towards the end to present us with a convenient human villain. Even more so that this character, and the troops under him, of course, present us with this now overplayed premise, which we have seen in so much post-apocalyptic content. From The Walking Dead, to the Omega Man slash I Am Legend story and all the adaptations, with the central thesis always leading up to, you see, it was man who were the real monsters all along. Dun-dun-dun. And to that I respond, well, yeah, and... You see, as far as I'm concerned, rage itself is a man-made virus, which spread due to man-made incompetence. I mean, short of an alien invasion, this stuff, whether it's rage virus or zombies, it's always created by man, whether it's intentional or not. That's the point. For me, it is all about the execution, and Eccleston delivers a chilling, subtle performance at the core of this final act to make it believable for the most part. Yes, some of his underlings are borderline cartoonish, but consider the circumstances. Amid all the carnage that this group of soldiers likely had to personally tear through just to get to this point in the story, where they are now holed up in a compound, gradually losing their minds. All of this pretty much tracks with the first two-thirds of the film, and it helps lead this movie towards a satisfying conclusion. And now the next category, which would be the trailer moment. This is the scener moment that best describes this movie. Yes, I'm going to go obvious here, as one particular sequence became the marketing hook for this movie. But how could it be anything else? I mean, some genre films, particularly the great horror films, they just have their defining moments, which everyone remembers, at the expense of every other scene. I mean, for Jaws, it's that first appearance of the shark, followed by, we're going to need a bigger boat. For Alien, it's the chestburster scene. Even going more recent to what many consider a modern classic like Get Out. It's probably that sunken place sequence following when Catherine Keener first taps her teacup with that spoon. Each of these movies have no shortage of great scenes, of course, but their legacies usually live on through one in particular. So, of course, for 28 Days Later, what else could it be than that early sequence of Jim having just woken up from a coma in a hospital, now wandering the empty streets of London, alone and confused? Hello! Hello! 
Without the use of any visual effects, it actually feels as if the busiest section of one of the world's most densely populated cities just seems empty, abandoned. This sequence just accomplishes so much for the rest of the movie. It establishes Jim as a character, it introduces us to the gritty visual palette, and of course it sets an overall dark and unsettling tone for everything which follows. And this brings us to the final category, the MVP. This is the person or people who are most responsible for the success of this film. In case it was not already obvious, this is Danny Boyle's movie, despite everyone else performing at the top of their abilities. After the disappointing reception to the big-budget DiCaprio vehicle, The Beach, which came out in 99, Boyle basically took things back to basics with this movie. He went smaller, making a movie very down and dirty, but still with an eye towards an expansive story. This movie would prove to be so resonant with a variety of audiences that when it first came out, several critics called it the first post-9-11 genre film to cast an eye towards how society had changed in the wake of that tragedy, including our escalating conflict in Iraq at the time. And 17 years later, it became one of those go-to rewatches for many, myself included, seeking out a cinematic analog to the outbreak of COVID-19. Now, while I will not delve into the minutia of how or why this relates to both events, it still demonstrates, once again, just how masterful a filmmaker Danny Boyle has become. He's adept at presenting imagery and themes which would be expanded upon, but he never bashes you over the head with messaging from dialogue. And like I said from the get-go, he's not afraid to delve into the darkest aspects of this subject matter. I mean, this film is sufficiently scary and quite heartbreaking at times, but he still knows how to leave us with a realistically hopeful vibe through images and music. For delivering a fast zombie thriller, which is so much more than just a fast zombie thriller, Danny Boyle is the MVP. Everybody loves the London stuff, and it's um, it's certainly been a great calling card for us for the film. You just show a snippet of it, and people are fascinated it because, by it, because everybody knows that London is impossible city to live in, let alone to empty, you know? But basically what we did is we did it very, very simply. We, we turned up very, very early in the morning. We had a lot of cameras, digital cameras, because we were able to use a lot of them, so that we could capture enough material in two minutes of the traffic being held back to create a sequence so that you would feel like the camera's moving around town with him. So there were three or four shots and the editor could spin them out so that they felt like it was a protracted space he was walking over. In fact, it's only like two minutes, 90 seconds that the traffic will be held for. Because even at that time of the morning, and even with a lot of traffic marshals who were usually very pretty girls that we sent out to ask motorists to wait, please, even then you only get two minutes of tolerance from people before they go, Oh no, I've got to go to work. You know, and they go back into the rage, really, which we all exist in in in, in cities. My rating for 28 Days Later is five stars out of five. Boyle, Garland, and crew crafted a true genre masterpiece which still holds up. Happy 20th anniversary. And if you're looking to watch 28 Days Later, it's available to buy or rent at Prime Video. And that ends another blood-spewing review. Special shout-out to my lovely wife Marlene Gershon for producing this podcast and to my lovely daughter Ella Gershon for assisting in the editing. Please like, subscribe, and share the Living for the Cinema podcast, and follow and like us on Facebook, Instagram, and Letterboxd. And join us next time for another review from Living for the Cinema. Living for the Cinema.